uh, that I'm going to use in terms of God's unity. The first one being uh, unity, that there are not two or more gods. The second being simplicity, um, which you may not agree with. There are, there are not two or more parts in God. And the third part being triunity, uh, which is there are three persons in one God. So we're going to look at, uh, I don't know if we'll get out of, uh, out of this concept of the unity of God tonight or not. I don't know if that's the work. I'll try not to bump the button. But um, we'll see if we, can, if we can work our way through. And as we go through and work our way through Scripture, I just want to encourage you to um, uh, feel free to lift a hand and say, I don't get it. So let's look at the biblical basis for the unity of God, <clears throat> that there is only one God. Uh, Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me. Over and over again, we'll see in Isaiah um, although I didn't put all the scriptures in Isaiah and Isaiah 44, 46 um, that talk about that there is only one God and God doesn't know any others. Um, Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Keep in mind that the word used for one is the word echad, which is a unity within plurality, right? Because we're going to see it the first time the word's used, one of the one of the principles of hermeneutics is to define a word based on or to try to define a word based on the way it's used the first time it's used right so we we see love used the first time in in genesis 22 between a father and a son uh when abraham's offering the son that he loves isaac as a sacrifice uh which helps us to to comprehend other places where where god talks about the love of god when we come to the word echad or one, we see that in uh, uh, Genesis chapter two, right? First time it's used is between a husband and a wife, and the two shall become one flesh, right? Echad. So it is a unity that speaks of plurality. And as we look at the unity of God, one of the things that we're going to see hinted at as we as we discuss the idea of uh, the Trinity, one of the things we're going to recognize in it is, is that there is a progressive revelation of God. By progressive revelation, I mean we're going to see more and more as we get into the New Testament on the ideas of, uh, of the Trinity. But in the Old Testament, what we're going to see is plurality in unity. Okay, We're going to see one God over and over again. There is one God. There is one God. But we're going to see multiple hints of plurality within that unity. It's one of the things that we'll discuss as we continue to work our way through. In Isaiah 37, 16 to 20, it says, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. So incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Shennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the works of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand 
that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. So the, the story of the battle between uh, Shennacherib and Hezekiah, right? This is part of the battle that leads to an angel destroying 185,000 roughly uh, Assyrians in a night. Isaiah 45:18. Thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited, I am the Lord and there is no other. Again, in Isaiah 45, I want you to notice all the things that is indicated by the prophet Isaiah that uh, that God is responsible for. He is responsible for creating the heavens, for forming the earth, for sustaining it, keeping it together, right? Establishing it, uh, and for the purpose of the earth and, and those who would come on it. Well, Malachi 2.10, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Mark 12, 29, Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Romans three thirty. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 through 6. Therefore, Concerning the things, uh, the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God the Father, of whom are all things, and we for Him, one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. Ephesians 4, 6. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And James 2.19 You believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So the concept we're trying to look at as we work our way through these scriptures is that throughout the Bible, the Bible uh, teaches us that there is one God. It's monotheistic. So, so in, a, in a moment, we're going to talk about the definition of the Trinity. And one of the three components of the definition of the Trinity is there is one God. So that's got to be foundational to however we explain the rest of the truths we find in Scripture. Now, we may struggle uh, within that definition for comprehension in our own regard to, to how that works out. What we want to be careful of, I think, is the, the three parts of that definition. Okay, so that first part, one God. Okay, he, he's unified. He's one. Implication of God's unity. Unity uh, versus polytheism. So if there's more than one God, then polytheism would be true. But we see throughout Scripture and through these verses, there's one God. One God. Okay, this is going to be uh, really the major a breakdown between Christianity and Mormonism. Whether or not they want to acknowledge it. I know Jason talked to, was it a couple of missionaries out there? At, at, and um, it seems like lately there's this, there's this idea of uh, 
stepping back from the proclamation that they're going to become gods, uh, right? You'll say to them, well, do you believe you're going to become gods? And, and usually, and I think it was the same answer with them, uh, the answer is, well, no, we're just trying to be perfected. Well, all they're doing is, is changing the vernacular because if you ask them, well, then do you disagree with Joseph Smith who taught that I will refute the idea of one in three, three in one, this is a confusing God. Truly, there have been gods before God, and there will be gods after God. And that, that's just a basic teaching from, from Joseph Smith, that as God is, you will become as you are God once was. That, so the, the, that idea, so within the framework of Mormonism, now I'm not saying every Mormon that you walk into understands that. You guys know that, right? The missionaries know that. That's not a new concept to them. But a guy you walk up on a street and you talk to him and you ask him about it, he may not have any understanding of it any more than you ask a Christian to, to explain to you the concept of the Trinity and he doesn't have any idea. Right? We don't always know the things that we believe. But Mormonism is polytheistic. Multiple gods. There are at least three gods of this earth. At least three of this earth. And other planets and other universes full of gods. So, so, but according to the Bible, Bible teaching that there's one God, God says, I know of no other gods. If God has infinite knowledge, then he would know that there are other gods, wouldn't he? So the idea that the Bible teaches, polytheism can't, can't stand up in it. Uh, the unity of, uh, of God versus tritheism. So the oneness of God is opposed to the heresy called tritheism, which alleges that there are three separate beings in the, in the Godhead. Monotheism asserts that there is one being who is God, not three beings. Hence, God's unity stands against the error of tritheism. Tritheism simply just means three gods. So it sees, and tritheism really is just another form of polytheism. Uh, it's just more defined. Polytheism doesn't have an, a limit. Tritheism speaks of three. Uh, the unity of God versus idolatry. Uh, if one and only one being in the universe is God, then only this being is worthy of worship and nothing else uh, than the ultimate is worthy of the ultimate commitment or worship. So there is one God. Therefore, only one God should be worshipped and not anything else. So... Just the implications of the concept of the unity of God and monotheism. There are three major monotheistic religions in the world. What are they? I'm sorry, what was the... I got Christianity and Islam. What was the other one? Judaism. Yeah. Judaism, Christianity, Islam are the, the three monotheistic um, religions in the world so let's look at what the early church fathers had i won't spend a lot of time on them but but let's take a look at them clement of alexandria the universal father is one the universal word is one the holy spirit is one it's it begins the framework okay of the concept of the trinity all we're doing with the concept of the trinity is taking what scripture says about god about yahweh Jehovah, and from that scripture trying in the best way with a limited with our limited um, language to describe what's God like then uh, Tertullian says I testify that the Father the Son and the Spirit are inseparable from one another my assertion is that the Father is one the Son is one the Spirit is one 
and that they are all distinct from each other. Augustine said, This Trinity is one God, and although it is a Trinity, it is nonetheless simple. For we do not say that the nature of this good is simple because the Father alone shares it, or the Son alone, or the Holy Spirit alone. They, speaking of the angels, know this Word and the Father and their Holy Spirit. Understanding that this Trinity is indivisible and that each of the persons is substantial, although there are not three gods, but only one. Again, let it, let it not be supposed that in this Trinity there is any separation in respect of time or place, but that these three are equal, co-eternal, and absolutely of one nature. So, a couple of objections that, that I think are going to lead us into some deeper things. Uh, objection number one, there are multiple plural references to God in the Bible. Um, we have the term God itself in a plural form, right? Not always, but a lot of the times God is the word Elohim, right? And if you look the word up, it's plural. So it's a plural word uh, put together. Sometimes we also see God speaks in plural, right? Genesis 1, let us create man in our image. So we see the we and the us is. <clears throat> Uh, and even the word one, echad, is a unity with plurality. So, <clears throat> objection to the unity of the oneness of God, how do you reconcile it with all these references to the plurality of God? So let's look at a few things. It's true that the very word for God in the Old Testament, Elohim, is a plural in form. Indeed, it can be translated God's, uh, that's Psalm 82.6. You have heard it said, see ye are gods. Jesus uh, uses this reference in the Gospel of John as well. However, when used of God, it is plural grammatically, but not ontologically. Okay, so grammatically plural doesn't mean ontological plurality, meaning plural in reality. doesn't mean multiple gods. <clears throat> it is plural in literary form, but not in reality. The many verses that we just talked about, they use this form for God, uh, but also declare He is absolutely one, are proof that the form is not intended to be a plurality of gods. Something else is intended. There's some sense of plurality being expressed, but not a plurality of gods. <clears throat> the best explanation is that already in the first chapter of Genesis, we have an indication of a plurality of persons in God Himself. We are not told how many persons. We have nothing approaching a complete doctrine of the Trinity, but it is implied that more than one person is involved, right? Let us make God in our. So there's plurality implied in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, the same can be said in Genesis 3.22. Behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Genesis 11.7. Come, let us go down and confuse their language. Isaiah 6, 8, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Uh, it's important also in the, in the Isaiah 6 uh, section, we're going to talk about a little bit later, you have singular work together with plural. Right? See what it, where he says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? So you have both the singular and the plural used together. Um, the Hebrew word for one, echad, used of God, can and does mean many in one. 
For example, in Genesis 2.24, we talked about it, refers to male and female, right? In marriage, becoming one flesh. Uh, at best, this is an implication of the Trinity, not an uh, affirmation of polytheism. Okay? It becomes a picture. In a little while, Jason's going to explain some of that stuff to us. But the idea that within marriage and husband and wife, we can see an implication, at least, a sketch of, of the Trinity. Um, in, I think it's in, I want to say disc three, might be disc four, uh, Grudem talks a little bit about the same thing, dealing with, uh, with marriage and the roles we see uh, referenced in the Trinity there. Uh, but it's not an affirmation of polytheism, not multiple gods. At the end of the day, we still have one, right? One God. Bible tells us one God, one God. Um, nonetheless, uh, while not allowing that there are many gods or many beings in the Godhead, the Bible does allow for a plurality of persons within the unity of essence, uh, such as or by such terms as Echad. So. While not opposing monotheism, the term echad does favor, does favor Trinitarianism. Uh, and finally, the Bible seems to imply that there uh, are many gods by the very command not to worship them. Right? You shall have no other gods before me. However, the other gods can be taken as imaginary, namely uh, gods created by us but not the real God. Or they can be understood as the demons behind these gods that are not to be worshipped. In 1 Corinthians 10.20 we see that. <clears throat> Rather the things which the Gentiles sacrifice. They sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. So just because the Bible talks about gods. Doesn't mean it's talking about an ontological reality. That there are multiple gods. Over and over again we're going to see. Not only does God use the term he's going to he's going to judge the other gods you're going to say you other gods tell me the future go ahead tell me what's going to happen and it doesn't mean by that statement that there are other gods he's using it to help men realize there are no other gods there's one god so anyways that's the idea that we're trying to get through uh the next objection um the main objection to God's unity is a claim that there is plurality within this unity, that there are three persons and one God. Isn't this a contradiction, affirming one and three? <clears throat> so we'll spend a little bit of time on this. Here's the, the concept. It's not a contradiction because God is one and three in different senses. I'm not saying that God is one and God is three. I'm saying God is one being and God is three persons he is three in a different way than he is one that's why it's not a contradiction a contradiction means something cannot a cannot be both true and false at the same time if a is true and false at the same time it's a contradiction okay if i say god is one being and god is three beings that's a contradiction everybody with me if i say god is one being or one essence and three in a different way, three persons, then that's not a contradiction. Um, I would say it's a mystery. The Bible's going to tell us a mystery. But remember, a problem is something for which we seek a solution. A mystery is something upon which we meditate, right? We spend times trying to comprehend the mystery that 
that is. So let's look at that concept of plurality, okay? In, in, in terms of this objection, when we talk about plurality, I want, us, I want us to just spend a little bit of time looking at the plurality in unity talked about in the Old Testament. This is the early, I don't know if that's a great way to put it, but the early revelation that we have as God's revealing who He is through Scripture we have a progressive revelation moving through to Christ. But as we work our way through, we definitely see a plurality within the Godhead. Let's look at it. Psalm 45, 6-7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Isaiah 45, 6. Any way you slice it, you have a plurality within divinity. Therefore, God, your God. You with me? Psalm 45, 7 is also what's called a messianic psalm, which means it is a psalm about Messiah. If Jesus is the Messiah, then the God... Speaking of God, the two that are being talked about here would probably be pictured as Father and Son. Psalm 45, 6, and 7 also comes up again and is quoted for us in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. By the way, Hebrews chapter 1 and John chapter 1 are probably two phenomenal places for the deity of Christ to spend time just meditating and working your way through. So when we look at it, Hebrews 1, 8, says this phrase, but to the Son, that's Jesus Christ, to the Son, He, or the Father, says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness, is the scepter of your kingdom. So according to the writer of Hebrews, the one being spoken of is Jesus Christ, and the one speaking is God the Father. Now, in the Old Testament, they didn't have Hebrews, Right? But what do they have? You have two distinct persons being referred to as God. Right? Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. There's plurality. Psalm 110, the, very, the, the most quoted uh, verse throughout Scripture is Psalm 110. Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord said to my Lord. Now this is traditionally or in the beginning used in reference to King David. But Jesus refers to this verse, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Jesus rightly understands that David is referring to two separate persons as Lord. In fact, he talks about Matthew 22, 41-46. But who is David's Lord if not God himself? And who could be saying to God, sit at my right hand? Except someone else who is also fully God. From a New Testament perspective, we can paraphrase this verse. God the Father said to God the Son, sit at my right hand. We see that, right? We're going to read about that in Daniel. When we look at Daniel, we're going to see the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days. Okay, so, so the reference is definitely there. But even without the New Testament teaching that ties together that idea, we see in the Old Testament 
the plurality. We, we can't, I can't put a number on it. I would probably say two at least, right? But I can't put a, but I am seeing plural. Yes, sir. Yes, all other monotheistic religions, so Judaism and Islam, will both. And as far as I know, all cults, uh, Jehovah Witnesses, Jesus is a created being. Um, he's an angel. He's not God. Uh, in Mormonism, Jesus is a created being. He's not God. He's the brother of Lucifer, but he's created by God. Uh, he's our brother just as much as he is Lucifer's brother. <laughs> Because we all began as as spirit beings or spirit children, um, you also will run into it again uh, with the uh, uh, UPC United Pentecostal Church, or uh, people who hold to something called oneness theology, um, which emphasizes the oneness, the unity that we're talking about, but uh, neglect the plurality. So, in essence, God is one at a time. He's either Father, either Son, either Spirit, but not all three uh, existing at the same time. Uh, so, for UPC, depending on who you talk to, and I'm sure not, they're not the only ones, but I, they're the ones I'm aware of. Um, some people consider them part of the evangelical community. Even though they reject the Trinity, they don't reject the deity of Christ, which is really the breaker. If Jesus Christ is not who he said he was, according to John 8, 24, he says, <clears throat> Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, we'll talk about that if we get that far tonight, you'll die in your sins. So knowing who Jesus is, is the key. You, you have faith in a different Jesus, not the Jesus is not Yahweh. Jesus is not God in the flesh or eternal God. Then according to scripture, it, that Jesus doesn't save. So that's some of the struggle when we talk to other cults and isms, right? Because Jehovah Witnesses have a Jesus, don't they? But he's a created being. He's not eternal God. That separates him from the Jesus in Scripture. The Jesus of Mormonism is the same way. They use Jesus. They use the same terms, a lot of those same things, but he's not the same Jesus. He's, he's a Jesus, also a created being, but uh, not, not God in the flesh. So according to John eight twenty four, you, you have to have that connection, the right Jesus. So... Where the Trinity is really important to grasp is really, and, and the, the chink where it's attacked most often is the deity of Christ. By, By any, anybody who is a rejecter. I mean, an atheist doesn't care, so you're not going to have an atheist tell you anything. I'd say both J, JWs, Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons. Uh, uh, well, in in Muslims, yeah. Islam obviously is gonna. That's what we can hear. Yeah, I'd say from here, that's the those three groups, and, and mostly Mormons here. Uh, I probably see less Jehovah Witnesses here than I did when I was in California. Do you have a question? Sure, sure. I just separate them. Because in my head they were floating around as monotheistic. They're they're wrong, but they're monotheistic. You know, your I guess your basic statement of faith, you know, where it says we believe in one God in three persons. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Yes. Even though, like the 
still you would consider the Holy Spirit a person. Yes. But we won't get there tonight. But yes. And and we will discuss it. But we probably won't get there. We we probably won't get there tonight. Um, Okay, let's look at uh, Isaiah 61. Oh, it's um, just as a side to the other. uh, Unless Jewish interpreters are are willing to admit a plurality of God, they still don't have an answer for Psalm 110. Any more than they had an answer when Jesus asked them. Jesus asked them, so what's David? Who is David referring to here? Remember, Jesus said, who is he referring to? Who is the son of David that he calls Lord? How does David call his son Lord? And Remember the Pharisees and the scribes didn't answer him, so Jesus said, "Then neither will I answer you." So the the still today, if they if they don't have which they won't, they'll have something else. But but uh, there's still not an answer for what Jesus referred to there uh, in Matthew, Isaiah sixty one one. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So Isaiah 61.1 distinguishes the Spirit of the Lord God from the Lord. Even though no personal qualities are attributed to the Spirit of the Lord in that verse. So I'm not trying to build anything big off it. I'm just saying there's plurality there. Isaiah 63.10 And they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned himself against them as an enemy and he fought against them. Scripture says God's people uh, rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, suggesting both that the Holy Spirit is distinct from God himself. It is his Holy Spirit. And that this Holy Spirit can be grieved, thus suggesting emotional capabilities which are characteristic of personhood. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and the launderer's soap. Here again, the one speaking, the Lord of hosts, distinguishes himself from the Lord whom you seek, suggesting two separate persons, both of whom are called the Lord. <clears throat> Hosea 1.7 Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword or battle, by horses or horsemen. Again, suggesting that more, one, more than one person can be called Lord and God. Hosea 1.7 <clears throat> Isaiah 48.12-16 says, Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am He. That's going to be an important discussion in a little while. I am the first. I am also the last. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth. My right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. All of you assemble yourselves and hear. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. 
He shall do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I have brought him, and his way will prosper. Come near to me and hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there. And now the Lord God and His Spirit have sent me. In Isaiah 48.16, the speaker, uh, apparently the servant of the Lord, also, by the way, a reference to Messiah, and now the Lord God has sent me and His Spirit. Here the Spirit of the Lord, like the servant of the Lord, has been sent by the Lord God on a particular mission. The parallel between the two objects of sending, me and His Spirit, would be consistent with seeing them both as distinct persons. It seems to mean more than simply the Lord has sent me in His power. In fact, from a full New Testament perspective, which recognizes Jesus, the Messiah, to be the true servant of the Lord predicted in Isaiah's prophecies, Isaiah 48, 16 has Trinitarian implications. Now the Lord God has sent me and His Spirit. Is spoken by Jesus, the Son of God, we see reference to all three persons of the Trinity. Secondly, not, not just those scriptures um, which give us a hint of plurality throughout the Old Testament, but also the references in the Old Testament to the angel of the Lord. Uh, obviously not every reference to the angel of the Lord, we're going to talk about some of them, but there is a distinction between the angel of Jehovah. Because the word Lord can be used multiple ways, we recognize when we look at the Old Testament Scripture that the way that most of our Bibles differentiate between Lord, Adonai, which can be given to anyone, a human leader or anybody else, and the term Lord, which is Yahweh, Yahweh or Jehovah, uh, is a capital L-O-R-D. Not just a capital L. All four capital letters indicate that we're talking about uh the, the angel, which means the messenger, okay, the Hebrew word, we're talking about messenger. Um, so the messenger of the Lord, or of Yahweh, uh, Jehovah. So there are, are references to this. In other words, there are scriptures wherein the angel of the Lord is called God. Genesis 16, 11 through 13 and the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael. So who is the angel of the Lord talking to? Hagar, right? Okay, so we're, we got Hagar uh, and Ishmael's birth. Because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he will dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Do you see it? She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Capital L-O-R-D. She called the name of Jehovah who spoke to her. The angel of the Lord called Yahweh. You are the God who sees. For she said, have I also here seen him? Who sees me? Yep. 
Same deal. We're going to talk about that scripture as well. Exodus chapter 3, verse 2. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. What do we got going on? The angel of the Lord in the midst of the bush. It's on fire. Yeah, we got Moses in the burning bush, right? The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord, that's Jehovah, Yahweh, saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush. Everybody good? The angel of the Lord is in the bush. The bush is burning. When Jehovah, Yahweh, saw him turn, God called to him from the middle of the bush. Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. Who was in the burning bush? The angel of Yahweh and the voice of God. Exodus 23, 20-21. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Now listen to how God describes this angel. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. So, God speaking of this angel that's going to go before them, uh, leading toward, moving toward the conquest, he says, my name is in this angel. Numbers 22.35, then the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but only the word that I speak to you, you shall speak. Okay, so what did the angel of the Lord say to Balaam? Only say what I tell you to say. Only say what I tell you to say. So, Balaam went with the princes of Balak. Now look at Numbers 22, verse 38. And Balaam said to Balak, Look, I have come to you. Now, have I any power at all to say anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. The angel of the Lord said, Only say what I say. Balaam said, I can only tell you the words God tells me to say. Um, Judges 2, verses 1 and 2. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the land which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my promise with you, my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? The angel of the Lord is speaking in the presence uh, or in the voice of God. Judges 6, 11-14. Now the angel of the Lord came, sat under the terebinth tree, which was in uh, Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress. 
in order to hide from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all these things happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about? Saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the Midianites. Have I not sent you? Side note, um, um, we're going to talk about wisdom in, uh, in, in a sp- particular place in Proverbs. Um, don't know I can make a hard, fast case on it, but it's definitely an interesting section. Most often when we, we talk about wisdom in the Proverbs, the Proverbs uh, uh, makes wisdom a person or, or describes wisdom as a person. But as we look at this proverb, it just seems like more than that is going on. Um, Let's look at it. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way. Before his works of old, I have been established from everlasting. From the beginning, before ever there was an earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding in the earth. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth or the fields or the primal dust of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he established the clouds above. When he strengthened the fountains of the deep. When he assigned to the sea its limit. So that the waters would not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was beside him as a master craftsman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and my delight was with the sons of men. So just as an aside, it's interesting. I think you could definitely make a case for for wisdom, at least in this proverb, being... uh, an indication of plurality within divinity at creation this person this being was this person was beside him as a master craftsman it's a little more than just the concept of wisdom so ultimately what we see in the unity of god we see the the teaching of scripture that talk about the idea that there is one god and so we want to make sure that we try to keep that foundational and really, where we get into trouble most often is when is the implications of our definitions and where those implications take us. And sometimes you think, well, I got a really good definition, and you lay it out, but then later on somebody uses that definition and leads to some heretical ideas. So the church says, well, that definition didn't work so good. We still want to be truthful and honest with what Scripture is laying out for us. So... That foundational principle for us is the concept of the unity or the oneness of God. Now, let's look at the next thing. Let's just begin to to talk a little bit about the triunity or the trinity. God is not only a unity, He's also a triunity. That is, there is not only one God, but there are three persons in that one God. 
This is the orthodox teaching of the Trinity. This is the, the basic definition of the Trinity um, as stated by the church today. We define the doctrine of Trinity as follows. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God. There is one God. So a lot of times our, our struggle or discussion is going to come up. People will say things like, well, if there's three persons, then there's three gods. So usually the way I deal with that is I just go back to the definition. Eternally existent in three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. The being, one being, three persons. I, I hold to the ideal that God as three persons is distinct from His essence. Much like I would hold that our personalities are distinct from our bodies. So, we have one in the, in the Trinity, one being, one essence that is God, um, and three distinct eyes within. Not eyes like that you see with, eyes like the letter. So the Father can say, I, and reference the Son and the Spirit as you. The Spirit can reference Himself as I, and talk of the Father and the Son as you. And the Son can reference Himself as I, and speak of the Father and the Spirit as you. The definition springs forth from Scripture and seeing what, not that Scripture says, describes this definition. What Scripture does is use, uses three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the same way, at the same time. Because you're not the only one. If that helps. So the, where the word person comes from is scripture that teaches that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit um, are able to show, for lack of a better term currently, I don't know how much I like it, are able to, sh to show emotion. For example, the Holy Spirit can be grieved. Um, they're able to show uh, emotion. And emotion is a characteristic of personhood. So in person, in the definition of person, it is usually if we look at a person, we talk about our, I'm a person. And as a person, like you said, uh, I, um, 
I may say I am a uh, image of God in the three body, soul, and spirit. Everybody doesn't agree with that, but that, that that's a definition of person. That's not the same concept of person that we're talking about when we talk about God. As person, we're talking about will, um, emotion, uh, maybe desire um, that is expressed in distinct ways through uh, different titles. Um, sometimes early church fathers describe it as modes, but there came through using that definition, um, something called modalism, which, which means God can't, all three distinctions can't happen at the same time, which we see in scripture, right? Father, son, and Holy spirit responding. They're called the Trinitarian scriptures, um, Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The, the Son being baptized, the Spirit descending upon him as a dove, and the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So the, the idea is to try to come up with a definition that, that is able to make a distinction between those titles, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, that at the same time it has distinction. Uh, you have the fullness of God in each so it kind of, that's where I struggle with the concept of parts um, so that you have uh, each person is fully God, right? Jesus is fully God, Holy Spirit, fully God, Father, fully God. So the, the idea of person comes from the distinction we see in the, the emotions, the desires, the will, and function and that difference in function doesn't necessarily mean uh, less in essence so in those three things that can occur at the same time they come up with person yes ma'am <laughs> Under person? Under person. Sir? And, and in function, I mean, I think that's absolutely right, because if we look at what Jesus said, he said, I must go, because then the Holy Spirit will come, because he's got that function, that's the Holy Spirit's function, to draw all men onto, uh, onto himself. Mm -hmm. So otherwise, if Jesus had that function, um, I guess he would have done that while he was on the earth, or, but the Holy Spirit must come, you know, to, to, to do that, to draw yeah. all men onto basically. And I, and I think I think it, you know person is is a struggle. I really, a lot of it is struggle. The, the ineffability of God kind of because our language hinders us in the idea of person, in the concept of parts, in the in the. So the important thing I think to hold to, even if you struggle with the idea of person, if you got a better word, I'm okay with it. But as long as all three of those things remain true, so you have three distinct whatever term you'd like better than person, three distinct, all fully God, each one fully God and one God. We're using the concepts primarily where 
each person of the Trinity that we haven't got to yet is called Yahweh. And that Christ specifically, it says, is uh, that in him dwells the fullness of God in bodily form. So you have all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, called Jehovah. So all three have to be Jehovah. They, are, they have to be the fullness of who God is. You have not lied to the Holy Spirit, but to God. Mm-hmm. Or you lie, you've lied to God, yeah. So, and, and some, because some of them we're going to look at those concepts, right? So the, the idea is when we go, when we look scripturally, and, and probably all we'll have time to really deal with, really, I don't think anybody has a hard time with the person of the Father. Usually that's never attacked. Okay, Father, got it. Father's God. The, it's the other two where we find the, the, the struggle, the other two distinct um, for lack of a better term, persons works for me, but the other two persons. And so recognizing those roles, different role, uh, different, different functions within similar roles. They're all going to be called um, uh, to be a part of creation. Father created, the Son created, the Holy Spirit created. We're going to see all three of those. Doesn't mean they created it in the same way. Oftentimes, the way it's described is the father decreed, the son acted, um, and the Holy Spirit hovered. <laughs> what that works out to, I'm not sure. So, is God the Father, does he have the function of like the timetable, I guess? Especially in the verse when Jesus is talking about um, when he was asked, when will these things be? And uh-huh. he says, God knows, God the Father knows. Is he saying, is he saying that I don't know? Jesus is God the Son. Is he, saying, I don't know he is saying that, yeah. And Jesus is a little bit, as we as we kind of delve into the realm of Jesus, we're, we're going to also delve into what's called the hypostatic union, which is um, Jesus has two natures. Jesus has the fullness of God, the essence, the being of God, and he has human nature att- attached to that. So when Jesus speaks of limitation in his ministry on earth, Certainly prior to the resurrection, when Jesus spoke of limitation, he's speaking in his human nature. So in that place, remember in in Philippians, we're going to talk about Philippians chapter two, verses five through eight. You have what's called the the pleroma, the emptying, uh, the kenosis. I'm sorry, the kenosis. So the emptying that takes place in the role of son in taking on flesh. And so that is that, I, I don't want to say, uh, that voluntary um, limitation is through his humanity. So in that essence, at that moment, he says, I don't know, only the Father knows, because he's speaking through the dual nature, the nature of his humanity. At least that's how we describe it, because he's described fully God. We see it in that same scripture, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. It says he is in the image of God and the image of the bondservant. Fully God, fully man. Those, those descriptions lay out uh, that concept, especially in the Greek. You see the same thing in Hebrews chapter 1. 
that tells us in 1 verse 3 that he is the expressed image of the invisible God, which means the exact replication. The, he is, is one in, in nature and character with uh, the being, the essence of God. So, I mean, those are difficult things that we wrestle with, right? So, so to, try to, to try to reconcile. And nobody's saying, you know, I don't think any of us are saying, yeah, that's, it's not a, a difficulty. It's why as we kind of work our way through the attributes, we, we try to talk on the transcendency. And last week we talked about the ineffability or the, the struggle in language to express what we're trying to express. So we want to hold fast to one God each distinct fully God, each distinct, for lack of a better term, I'm going to hold on the person. So each person fully God. Um, and uh, so we have three distinctions, each one fully God and one God. Those three things are scriptural, the, the, the basis that we want to hold on to through the doctrine. And what, what we see in the different heretical issues is the... If we take any of those three things out, it makes the definition easy. If we remove something, if we just take, if we say there's not one God, it's easy. Oh, it's cool. We got three gods. If we, if we just remove one of those three, but the problem is we, we're trying to be faithful, obviously, right? We want to be faithful to what scripture says and what it lays out for us. So we want to hold on to it. So, so I won't go a, a whole lot longer, but I definitely want to get into through the Father and, and just kind of start discussing the Son, um, because really the Son is where you're going to. to yes, sir. Go ahead. Okay. I'm uh, it's fine. Let's work our way through. Yes. Mighty God, everlasting Father, or eternal Father. I forget. Is it everlasting? doesn't really matter, I guess. So, yeah. So, uh, and, um, so when we come to Isaiah 9-6, it's a description. It's the description of the, the, not only the child that's born, but the son that's given. And I think, it, for me, it's another area where I hold to the fullness of God being within the Son. Not only that He is the Son, not only is He mighty God, which El Gabor, which is used of, of God the Father uh, multiple times throughout the Old Testament. Oh, it's one of the scriptures, by the way, if you run into Jehovah Witness, He'll tell you, well, yes, Jesus is mighty God, but He's not almighty God. Uh, the problem is that same exact term is used at Jehovah over and over again. So it's really synonymous. There's not a difference uh, between uh, Almighty God and Mighty God. So, so, um, so the so so what I see is the is the unification of essence or the fullness of God, rather than the blurring of the distinction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I think uh, in in what I would, what I would see in it is the eternality of the Son that He is equal to the Father. In fact, Jesus is going to say, "If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father." 
So the, the idea to me in Isaiah 9, 6 is that, the, is that concept, fullness. The the idea when we talked, remember we talked about um, um, omnipresence, the omnipresence of God, everywhere. But the omnipresence of God is not just that there's a part or a piece of God everywhere. Like there's a part of God in China and there's a part of God in in Russia, but that all of God is there. That if you have, if you could picture a drop, if there was such a thing, a drop of the essence of God. That's all God. It's everything that is God. It's, it kind of leans back toward uh, the simplicity of God. That's my struggle with God being parts. So the idea that, that God is one, he's, he's one, and everywhere he is, he's all there. All of him is in that place. And so I think that's what Scripture's teaching there. Probably. Uh, oneness Pentecostal would also say traditionally we're, we're supposed to be baptized in the name of Jesus. That's usually how you'll, you'll know someone's oneness because they'll ask you, have you been baptized in the name of Jesus? And I always say, well, yeah, because I, Jesus' name was there. Baptized in the name of the Father and the Son who is Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But that's not what they mean. So they, they specifically mean to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Um, so they may they may use that. I really haven't done a lot of uh, study on oneness Pentecostal. I bumped into him, Tony in Twin Falls, who does all the jail ministry as oneness. Uh, Victory Home or yeah. So so he's oneness. Um, um, traditionally, oneness for I don't know that it always has to be that way, but traditionally they also hold to. Uh, the speaking of tongues being the evidence of salvation and, and so forth. So there's multiple issues in that regard, but I haven't done a lot. The, there is a good website if you want to look at it. It might help answer some of your questions. Um, CARM, uh, um, what does it stand for? Christian Apologetics Research Ministry. It's uh, Matt Slick. He, he runs it. Huh? Are they in Boise? Oh, I didn't know that. Um, but he, he has a lot, uh, posted up that, that for one, this Pentecostal, usually if I have a question, I'll go to him on the Colts just because it's easy to, to get the information. <clears throat> okay. All right. So let's take a look. The, so we won't get, we won't get past these first few, but the idea Three different persons, three distinctions within the one God. Um, so the first one we'll look at, and we'll only do briefly because, like I said, we, we really don't have an issue with Father. So I did three, only three scriptures for Father uh, that make it very clear and easy. Um, John six twenty seven says, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set His seal on Him. So, very clear distinction where the Father is called God. Romans 1, 7, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Galatians 1, 1, Paul an apostle, not 
from men or through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So the, the distinction, as I said, almost never, I don't know of anybody who attacks the concept of Father, God as Father. So, so I, didn't, I didn't put a whole bunch of, of things into the, the reconciliation. Most often when we deal in the New Testament and particularly with Paul, these are the three ways he's going to reference uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So he will use the term God for the Father. He will use the term Lord for the Son. And he will use the term Spirit for, for the Holy Spirit. So that's traditionally the distinctions that that Paul makes um, in referencing um, them. Okay, let's look at the Son and, and see if we how far we can get uh, through that. So... Specifically, I'm going, to, I'm going to begin with the concepts of the, the son called Yahweh. So, so Yahweh is only used to refer to one true God. <laughs> Did I kill it? Nope. Um, so no other person or thing uh, was to be worshipped. The only, only person to be worshipped was Yahweh. Uh, his name and glory were not to be given to another. So uh, Isaiah said, Thus saith Jehovah, I am first, I am last, and beside me there is no God. Uh, I use quotations in this section from the ASV only because the ASV uses the word Yahweh or capital L-O-R-D. It prints it as Jehovah. So we can see the distinction. Um, and I am Jehovah, that is my name and my glory. I will not give to another, neither my praise unto graven images. Uh, Isaiah 42.8. Uh, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, in John 17.5, He says, Now, Father, glorify me together with Yourself with the glory which I had with You before the world was. That's an obvious claim to the divinity of Christ, the deity of Christ. For Jehovah of the Old Testament said, My glory I will not give to another. Jesus says this is the glory that we had together before the world was. Revelation 1.17 And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he said, or he laid his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. This is Jesus talking. Isaiah 44.6 Thus saith Jehovah, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, <clears throat> Jehovah of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. Beside me there is no God. By the way, in the ASV, it's interesting there because we have uh, multiple titles, right? You see, uh, thus saith Jehovah, the King of Israel, and His, Jehovah the King's, Redeemer, what's His name? Jehovah of hosts. The Lord of Sabaoth. So you have the Lord of Sabaoth and you have uh, the Lord, the King of Israel. Saying, I am the first and the last. Beside me there is no God. Uh, Jesus declared in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. In Psalm 23, Jehovah is our shepherd. I shall not want. John 5, 26 and 27 for as the Father has life in Himself, so He also granted the Son to have life in Himself. And has given Him authority to execute judgment also. 
because he is the son of man. So, in Joel 3, 11 and 12. Haste ye and come all ye nations round about and gather yourselves together. Thither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Jehovah. Let the nations bestir themselves and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations round about. Jesus declares, not only does he have life and the ability to raise the dead, which only Jehovah has, but also that he is the judge. Uh, we'll see some more as we work our way through. John eight twelve. Then Jesus spoke to them and said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And Psalm 27, 1 says, Jehovah is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Jehovah is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Which kind of leads us into the concept of the I am. So we'll look at that under the same heading. Uh, Jesus as Jehovah or Yahweh. The I am most often is referred back to Exodus 3.14, right? You guys probably heard me say that a number of times on Sunday morning. Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you will say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So as we work our way through the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John is built around seven I am statements. I used to de- define it this way. Uh, in Exodus, the Lord God says he is the I am, but he doesn't really describe who the I am is. He just says, I am that I am. I am has sent you. And when we come to John, the gospel of John, Jesus is going to declare him to us. He's going to declare Yahweh or Jehovah to us. The I am he's going to declare to us. Through his seven I am statements. Um, but there's, there's a, a bridge I cross in doing that. That I don't traditionally talk about. So we're going to kind of build the bridge for you to understand how we can go to Exodus 3 from, from the Gospel of John. How that works. Because we're dealing obviously with Hebrew and Greek. In the Greek, the I am is the ego I me. In Hebrew, um, the word is anu. I'm going to say anu. Where did I lose it? I'll find it. Uh, anihu. The anihu is translated through the Septuagint as the ego I me. And used over and over again for the name of God. That's how we, we build that bridge. So I just want to kind of guide you through it uh, kind of quick. There's really four... Um, Really emphatic statements. There's more, but four really emphatic statements of the I am in the Gospel of John. I have them listed for you here. John eight twenty four. Um, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. I know from context in John chapter 8, verse 24, Jesus cannot be talking about the fact that I am existing. He was talking to scribes and Pharisees who are standing in front of him and obviously believe. He exists. Jesus is saying something else. Or the scribes and the Pharisees are saved because they believe Jesus exists. And so they won't die in their sins. They'll, they'll be forgiven. John eight fifty eight. This is the one most often pointed to when we discuss the I am statements. Right? Before Abraham was, I am. 
uh, John 13, 19. This is an important one that's going to come up multiple times in Isaiah. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. You'll notice in every one of the I am's except John 8, 58, you have the italics he placed afterwards, right? Which is putting in, put in by the guys who, who translate to kind of help carry the idea when, when the English isn't so smooth, they, they, they add that to try to help you understand the idea about what's being said. And then John 18, 5 and 6, they answered him. Uh, this is when Jesus is arrested. Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus said to him, I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with him. Now when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Okay, let me, let me try to build the bridge. In each of these verses, a particular Greek phrase appears. Ego I me. The closest and most logical connection between John's usage of ego I me and the Old Testament is found in the Septuagint rendering of a particular Hebrew phrase, anihu. In the writings primarily of Isaiah, though not completely, the Septuagint translates the Hebrew, Hebrew phrase anihu as ego I me. Anihu is often used as a replacement term for the proper name of God. That's, that's why uh, it helps us build the bridge. Let's look at Isaiah 41.4. Who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first and the last. I am He. Anihu. I am He. In the Septuagint, ego I me. I am. Isaiah 43.10. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. Anihu. Anihu, translated in the Septuagint, ego I me. I am. Isaiah 46.4 Even to your old age I am He. And even to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. Even I will carry and deliver you. So in each of these instances, the phrase anywho appears at the end of the clause and is so rendered in the LXX is Septuagint, just as in the seven examples in John. The phrase ego I me appears as a translation of a few other phrases in Isaiah as well that are significant to our discussion. In Isaiah 43:25, I, even I am he who blots out your transgression. For my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. In Isaiah 51.12, I, even I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die? And of the son of man who will be made like grass. This, these two words are the translation of anoki anoki who as ego I me, which is a more emphatic uh, term. In Isaiah 52.6, uh, therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know that in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. Um, in Isaiah 52, 6, anywho is translated as ego I me autos. Again, a more uh, emphasized form of the same term. Isaiah forty-five eighteen. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God? Who formed the earth and made it. Who established it. Who 
did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. We read this earlier, you remember. I am the Lord, and there is no other. In 45.18, we find, Ego I me curios for Ani Yahweh. Throughout the Septuagint, and why uh, many Christians died in the early Roman persecutions, in the Septuagint, the name Yahweh was translated Curios. Curios, which is the word Lord, which we see in our translations today, same term in the Greek. So the word Lord, Curios, the reason so many died is because once a year you took a pinch of incense and you said, Kaiser Kyrios, Caesar is Lord. But for them, Lord was a reference to God. And really, for Caesar it was too. That's why you did it. So they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't say, Kaiser Kyrios. They would say, Yeshua or Jesus Kyrios. Jesus is Lord, not not Kaiser, not Caesar. So <clears throat> this is a, a reference to the use of from the Hebrew to the Greek. Okay, Same phrasing, same usage in Exodus 3.14 as in Isaiah. So this is kind of what helps us build the bridge. Okay, The use of Anihu by Isaiah is a euphemism for the very name of God Himself. Some see a connection between Anihu and Yahweh as referring specifically to being. Or you could say referring to essence. There seems to be a direct connection between the Septuagint and Jesus' use of Ego I Me. Well, why? Because you're talking about disciples who, for whom this is the Bible they grew up using, the Septuagint. You notice that when we go into the Gospels, oftentimes the references to the Old Testament don't match the Old Testament references we have in our Old Testament. Why is that? Because the Old Testament references that we have are in the Old Testament are based on the Hebrew. The Old Testament references we read in the Gospels are the Septuagint, based on the Greek. That's most often the differences that we see uh, as a part. In Isaiah, this is kind of interesting, so, so I'm hoping that this, this helps you uh, be able to understand some of it. In Isaiah 43.10, we read, in order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Isaiah 43.10. John 13.19. Jesus said to His disciples, From now on I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe I am He. When we remove the extraneous words or the phrases that connect the clauses, so we're removing the phrases and we're just looking at the clauses, Here's what the two passages say. Isaiah 43.10 Hine pistesite holti ego aimi. John 13.19 Hina pistesite holti ego aimi. Same phrase. Same thing. Even if one was to theorize that Jesus himself did not uh, attempt to make such an obvious connection between him and Yahweh, which would be difficult to prove, one must answer the question of why John, who is familiar with the Septuagint, 
was so intentionally, would so intentionally insert that parallelism. Another parallel between Egoimi in John 13, 19 and its usage in Isaiah has to do with the fact that in 13, 19, Jesus is telling them the future. One of the very challenges to the false gods thrown down by Yahweh in the passage from Isaiah. This connection is direct in Isaiah 41, 4. Who has performed and accomplished it? Calling forth the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, am the first and the last. I am He. Here, the calling forth of the generations, which is time itself, the word generations, aeons, uh, um, the same is true in John 13, 19. In the same chapter of the book of Isaiah, referenced above in verse 22, we read, Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were all about, that we may consider them and know their outcome, or announce to us what is coming. That this reference uh, to knowledge of the future would appear in the same section that uses any who for the name of God, and that this would be introduced by the Lord Himself in the same context, used the same way in John thirteen nineteen, is significant. Okay, it's not. Uh, it is not hard to understand why there have been so many who have not wished to make the connection that John makes between Jesus and Yahweh. One cannot make this identification outside of a Trinitarian understanding of the gospel, as one can certainly not identify Jesus as the Father in John's gospel. If Jesus is identified as ego I, me in the sense of the Old Testament any who, then one is left with two persons sharing one nature. That is God. And this, when it encounters John's discussion of the Holy Spirit, becomes the basis of the doctrine of the Trinity. So the idea that all three called the same term, given that same term, Yahweh, is the basis for them all sharing one nature and them all being complete. Uh, Lest one should find it hard to believe that John would identify this, that this was John's purpose in the I Am statements, uh, that he would identify the carpenter from Galilee as Yahweh, it might be pointed out that he did uh, just that in John twelve thirty nine to 41. Let's look at it. Uh, it's over on page 82, John 12. I'm going to back up to, to uh, uh, verse 36 so we can catch a little bit more of the context and see what's going on. Okay, John 12, 36. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. These things, this is the key, Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. In the context of John chapter 12, his glory and him refer to Jesus. So he's saying... When Isaiah 
in Isaiah 6, verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on His throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. This Lord that Isaiah saw, according to John chapter 12, was Jesus. He goes on to say, just to tie the sections together, in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 6, And He said, Go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. So the idea that that Jesus unintentionally used the I am statements doesn't make sense in light of John 12 where he uses the vision of Isaiah seeing the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6 as a reference to Isaiah seeing Jesus. Uh, Next section kind of deals with John 8, 24. Um, We might do well then with this understanding in mind to look at Jesus' words at John 8, 24. Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Jesus here gives us the content and object of saving faith. Real faith is that which focuses on the real Jesus. A faith that demands a change change in Jesus before a commitment is made is not real faith at all. The Jews standing around Him during the conversation most assuredly would not have denied that He was a man. That was not sufficient for faith. Some had even recently proclaimed Him as Messiah. That was not sufficient for faith. Some might hail him as a prophet or a miracle worker, blessed by God, but that was not sufficient for faith. Some today say he's a great moral teacher and philosopher, but that is not sufficient for faith. Some call him a God or a great angel, but that's not sufficient for faith. Jesus himself laid down the line. Unless one believes him, for who he says he is, the ego I me, one will die in his sins. There is no salvation in a false Christ. If we are to be united with Christ to have eternal life, then we must be united with the true Christ, not a false representation. It is out of love that Christ uttered the words in John 8.24. We do well to heed them. The first time John 8.24 was read to me by my Greek teacher, Uh, he read it, unless you believe that I am eternal God, you will die in your sins. Now, eternal God's not there. It's just like those other words with italics. But that's the weight that ego I me carries in the context and the way it's used in the Gospel of John. And just to kind of, this is probably as far as we'll go tonight, I just want to give you the, the witness of the church. And early church fathers and other theologians they kind of deal with the same thing. Uh, Augustine wrote this: Weigh the words and get knowledge and get a knowledge of the mystery before Abraham was made. Understand that was made refers to human formation, but am to divine essence. He was made because Abraham was a creature. He did not say before Abraham was I was, but before Abraham was made, who was not made, saved by me, I am. Nor did he say this, before Abraham was made, I was made. 
For in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and in the beginning was the Word. Before Abraham was made, I am. Recognize the Creator. Distinguish the creature. He who spoke, or he who spake, has made the seed of Abraham, and that Abraham might be made. He himself was before our Abraham. Leon Morris, a theologian, has written, I am must have the fullest significance it can bear. It is, as we have already had occasion to notice, in the style of deity. B.B. Warfield has written concerning this. And again, as the most impressive language possible, he declares, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Therefore, he claims for himself the timeless present of eternity as his mode of existence. Expositor J.C. Ryle. Let us carefully note what a strong proof we have here of the pre-existence and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. He applies to Himself the very name by which God made Himself known when He undertook to redeem Israel. It was I Am who brought them from the land of Egypt. It was I Am who died for us upon the cross. The amazing strength of the foundation of a sinner's hope appears here. Believing on Jesus, we rest on divinity, on one who is God as well as man. There is a difference in the Greek verbs here employed, which we should uh, carefully notice. The Greek for was is quite different for the Greek for am. It is as if our Lord said before Abraham was born, I have an existence individual and eternal. Luther said, uh, The Lord Christ is angry below the surface and says, Do you want to know who I am? I am God. And that in the fullest sense. Do as you please. If you do not believe that I am He, then you are nothing and you will die in your sin. No prophet, apostle, or evangelist may proclaim and say, Believe in God and also believe that I am God. Otherwise you are damned. A.T. Robertson certainly did not see any linguistic problems here. I am, ego I me. Undoubtedly here Jesus claims eternal existence with the absolute phrase used of God. The contrast between genestai, um, which is entering into existence of Abraham, was, and I me, am, uh, or timeless being, is complete. See the same contrast in uh, one. And Egeneto and in 114, uh, both referring to John. See the contrast also in Psalm uh, 92 between God and the mountains. William Hendrickson put it rather bluntly. The I am here, John 858, reminds one of the I am in 824. Basically the same thought is expressed in both passages, namely that Jesus is God. So that kind of works our way through. There's a, a lot more just still dealing with the concept of Jesus and being Yahweh and, and being uh, claiming to be Yahweh. Because not only do we have the verses that we talked about, but we're also going to have the actions that we're going to work our way through. You're welcome to, to peruse and, uh, and we'll have more opportunity maybe for di- discussion next time as we work our way through. Uh, the divinity of Christ, and, and hopefully 
we'll have time for the Holy Spirit as well. Um, again, I encourage you, um, great resources to, to check out. Podcast is free on iTunes. Uh, the podcast is uh, uh, Grudem. Why did I lose his first name? Wayne. It's Wayne Grudem. Um, he's got like 80-some podcasts. You don't have to listen to 80 podcasts. Just do a search of the Trinity and four come up. Um, so he does a pretty good job of working his way and, and a lot of interaction dealing with questions. May not answer the question that you have, uh, but that's a really good source. And uh, James White's um, The Forgotten Trinity is uh, another good source to just try to work our way. The, the James White one is written to Christians, so specifically to help us in wrestling with some of the terms and, and how those things, um, maybe how we can reconcile them. And um, hopefully, as we do, and, and, and as we have more opportunity to discuss it, I said we get a chance to, to, to uh, talk about Jason's thing, but I want to get through Jesus and the terms uh, where he's referred to as Yahweh before we do it. So, so we'll work our way through the rest of that, and then we'll talk a little bit about that picture in Genesis 1 um, in God making man in his image and in his likeness. Uh, or in our image and our likeness. So we can take a look at, uh, at some of that next time as well. To help, long ways to go. I know it's a lot of information to, to kind of grapple with, but I just encourage you that when God calls us to love the Lord our God, He calls us to love Him with all our mind. So there's an exercise that uh, requires us to engage that, you know, as we work our way through Scripture. So... So hopefully um, this gets us started. There are, I don't know what page did I get to, 80? Yeah, so there's 10 more pages just dealing with uh, the divinity of Christ. So, so a lot of stuff. But it's important because really it's important in terms of our apologetic because that's where you're going to get attacked. I mean, you'll get attacked on the concept of Trinity, but how they're going to attack the Trinity is through the deity of Christ. He's not God. Or he's his own God, another God. So hopefully kind of working our way through those scriptures will help get that foundation. And feel free, if you if you find another uh, definition of the Trinity that kind of works with those building blocks that we're talking about, those foundations, um, you know, I'm, I am... Uh, I'm willing to hear something better or, or a better way to use it that's less confusing. So that's a difficult concept, but hopefully we can work our way through it. Sound like a plan? We'll pray and cut guys loose. It's kind of late, but if you got questions, I'm here. So happy to stay as long as you want and wrestle with them. Sound good? Levy, you want to pray us home? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I just thank you for this night, Lord. I thank you for the teachings that uh, you've given us tonight, Lord. And I just pray that they uh, they find uh, good soil, Lord, into our hearts and into our minds. And uh, it's a lot to deal with over one night, Lord. But I just pray that we all are, are diligent in the teachings and that we continue to look into this, Lord God. And I just pray that we all get home safely tonight to our families. And I just uh, ask that... Uh, Tomorrow we uh, we use some of these things that we learn, Lord God. I just thank you for all that are here tonight and their families. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.